0: Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton.
1: And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World.
0: Mate, this is a, uh, a good eye-opening idea about how much we're addicted to technology and everything digital these days and a bit of a eye-opener as to maybe we shouldn't be so addicted.
1: Mm. So, we're going to take you through a little journey through his other two books, So Good They Can't Ignore You into deep work into digital minimalism because they all are related into how social media is really having a huge cost on our lives and especially in our careers
0: they tie together very well, and if you if you want to listen to those full episodes, you can go back and search for those. But as a bit of context, so good they can't ignore you. Started off with the idea that you know people say you know find a, a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life, or you know follow your passion or follow your dreams, or if you just find your passion, then you'll love what you do and everything will be fine. But this book really went into the ideas that that probably isn't the best suggestion for a good career.
1: Mm, so that's the passion hypothesis. It says that the key to finding occupational happiness is to first figure out what you're passionate about, don't settle until you find what your passion is and then find a job that matches that and then all this money and uh, love for your job and all these kind of things will follow. But as he said, this is flawed for a few reasons. First of all, he says that passion is rare and he's got a study to back this up. It was a survey of a bunch of Canadian students about you know what are all your passions out there And they found that the top five were dance, hockey, skiing, reading, and swimming. Though dear to everyone's hearts, what their passions were, none of them really aligned with actually a job where you can actually learn something or you can actually earn something. So, only less than 4% of all the passions they listed, you could actually make a living out of.
0: Yeah, so it's that idea that, you know, we don't have this all, we don't all know what our innate underlying passion is, and it's just ready to find a job there. Another one is that passion takes time and they found that they did a survey of of nurses actually and that the nurses who had been nursing for 30 years enjoyed their job a lot more than the nurses who were you know first and second year out so that they found that over time the more they did it the more they uh, the more they improved at it the more they enjoyed it it became a passion rather than being a passion from the very start
1: mm, if you think about those following their passion just quitting their their job it, if you follow your passion just quit your job straight away you're not going to be there long enough to actually get competent so then you can actually get the fruits of passion. The third one was the passion is the side effect of mastery. And if you think back to Dan Pink's book, what are the three things that make up an incredible job that's fulfilling? It's autonomy, the idea that you can wake up, you can control your time, do what you want to do. You know, I'm not going into work today, I'm going surfing, I'll do the work later. Or competence, meaning you're great at what you do. And also purpose, the idea that you're doing something meaningful and making contributing to something bigger than yourself.
0: And so that's the idea that you know passion is not just this thing that we can uh, objectively cling to, that we've all got this passion and then we go and find a job that matches it. So that idea that just follow your passion is bad advice. He goes a step further to say it's not just bad advice, it's actually dangerous advice because if you go out there and quit your job and follow your passion and... Either it, it it turns out it wasn't your passion, or it turns out that there's no way to make a living out of that passion. You just end up being Johnny on the on your mum's couch eating two minute noodles because that mm. is dangerous advice.
1: You know, successful people might say, "Look, like Steve Jobs said this: you got to just follow what you're passionate about." But if you look at it through the lens of, say, survivorship bias, there are a lot of people out there who follow their passion who actually don't make the success like Steve Jobs does and you never hear from them. So you're only hearing about a very select minor few who narrates their their, their past as if they were following passion but in reality they actually followed what Cal Newport suggests is Um, the craftsman mindset to actually get good at what they do and then, you know, passion was a side effect of this.
0: Yeah, he says that if Steve Jobs just followed his passion at the start, he probably would have been rocking out in India, doing a lot of yoga.
1: Well, he was, yeah, he was interested in Eastern mysticism and Mm. Western history and and, um, magic mushies and stuff, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. But it, it wasn't that, that later on when he looked back after a long career, a, a long successful career, that then he said, yeah, follow your passion, which, which is not necessarily what he set out to do. So the next thing he says that, you know, you need to focus on skill. So rather than the passion mindset of focusing on what the world can offer you and what, you know, matching up your passion with a job, he says instead take the craftsman mindset. Which is focusing on what you can offer the world and developing your skills and your competence. Get good at what you do first, rather than thinking, "Yeah, I'm passionate. This is what I want. this is what I definitely want to do."
1: Well, we said earlier the elements of good work are, are creativity, impact, and control. So these things are rare and valuable in a lot of jobs. So if you want to go out and get these rare and valuable things, you need to be able to give something rare and valuable in return. So these this is what he calls career capital, the skills that are rare and valuable that give you leverage to actually go after these things or make a good career.
0: Mm, It's like an an economic transaction. If you want those things, creativity, impact, control, they're rare and valuable things. You can't just give something simple and expect that in return. In order to get something rare and valuable, you need to give something rare and valuable. So he says that that career capital, it really comes down to first and foremost, getting really good at what you do, building those skills, and as the title suggests, becoming so good, they can't ignore you. If you focus on building skills first and developing that capital, then you can later trade it in for creativity, impact, control.
1: All right. So, the key to getting that career capital before you trade it into the real things that give you uh, a good career is is the idea of skill development. And to actually develop skills, you need to deploy the idea of deliberate practice. And this is where you need to go down deep and dirty into something to learn it properly. Not necessarily dirty. But deep, definitely you, deep. Some things you can, I guess. <laughs> but then this is where it ties into his second book, which we'll bridge into now, which is deep work.
0: Yeah, as you said, that you know we want to be developing important skills. And he distinguishes two types of work as shallow work versus deep work. Shallow work is the non-cognitively demanding stuff like any logistical tasks, Often, they're the things that don't take a lot of concentration or effort. You have to do them in many cases. You know, they're things that you can do while you're distracted though. And really, whilst a lot of the times they have to be done, they're not really creating any value and they're not uh, adding value to yourself in terms of that skill development element.
1: Mm, so, as the name suggests, shallow, light. You're not really having to really use much of your brain in or to wrap your brain around much of a subject. So, you're just pushing out shitty little emails and stuff. Opposite to that is the deep work, which he defines as professional activities performed in a state of distraction- free concentration that push your cognitive capacities to the limit. So these efforts create new value, improve your skill, and are hard to replicate. So in this, you're got no one distracting you, you're in an area by yourself for for two to three hours, you're wrapping your brain around a really difficult task. And in that task, if it's just beyond your capacities, you're really pushing yourself and growing in competence to the the challenge of what that task presents. And the only way to do that is through deep work. And if you keep doing that, that means over time, you're actually going to be developing new skills and you're growing more cognitively and you, you, you're going to end up with rare and valuable skills like we were saying before.
0: Yeah, he says that deep work is a is a factor of, of two things. It's time spent multiplied by intensity of focus. So it's not just going out and spending a lot of time. It also has to be highly focused. So as you said, not distracted. You're really are deliberately practicing, deliberately working on tasks that will become increasingly valuable over time. And so, it's sort of like what we said. So, this the first book is saying passion is bad. Instead of following your passion, first work on your skills. And so, his second book is saying, okay, now to work on your skills, go deep. Deep work, less distractions. And so, at the same time that deep work is becoming increasingly valuable, it's also becoming increasingly rare because the world around us, companies and businesses that we work for, are pushing towards everybody being constantly connected, always reachable, open plan offices. People just come up and tap you on the shoulder and ask you for something. So all these distractions are reducing our intensity of focus of deep work.
1: Mm, it's almost like a badge of honor for some people, I think. When you send them an email and then they reply three minutes later, mm. they see a lot of people see that oh, as a definitely. badge of honor, but it's obvious that you know their whole working day, they're probably in this state of shallow work where they're sitting in front of that inbox, and as soon as the inbox comes, they go, and they just shoot one back like a ping pong ball, you know. And and what you just said there, so this is things like that are becoming more valuable. Open plan offices where you can get distracted all day, but at the same time, we need to actually have um, the, the the modern economy requires us to actually have these skills where you need to actually go deep in the first place. So for those who go towards deep and can prioritize depth, they're going to be increasingly rewarded.
0: And so, you might think that you're doing your deep work, you're working really hard for three hours on a project, and it won't hurt if you just check the email, quick 30-second response, and then you're back into your deep work. But there's this thing called attention residue. So, even just that quick switching of tasks, you're really pulling yourself out of that focused, deep work. And it really does take you know, that extra 5, 10, 15 minutes that your brain is still in the background thinking about the email rather than focusing. So you really, every time even you think it's a quick check, you've really pulled yourself out of that deep work and it takes a lot more time to get back into it. And that's where you're sort of tying into this new, brand new book, Digital Minimalism, how everything digital and connected has taken over. And it's really detracted from us being able to do deep work, which means we can't develop skills, which means we can't trade it in and build our career capital.
1: If you think about the concept of attention residue, if you... The the thing that's probably going to take away the most from your attention residue is this idea of this constant static that you got this thing in your pocket, mm. you know, pulling your attention uh, up to a hundred times a day for some people, hours and hours of each single day. This thing's pulling your attention, so you know we're losing control of our cognitive abilities and where we direct our cognitive attention to. So this is where minimalism comes into it. It's taking control back over your. Your your life really away from the these digital devices.
0: Yeah, one thing to set up this idea of um, digital minimalism was a study, I believe, in an uh, an interview we did with Jay Papazan, the author of The One Thing. He talked about this a similar sort of the study, papa, the big, big Papa, papa man. <laughs> where the, where there was uh, people doing a, like an IQ test, and there was three distinct groups. One was just regular doing an IQ test. One they had people's uh, phones off to the side and they'd send them notifications and the phone would buzz, but they didn't They didn't get to check it. They're still doing their work, uh, but the, the phone was buzzing in the background every so often. And then the third group was high on marijuana. And it turns out the people that were distracted just by the idea that someone's trying to get in contact with me, someone's trying to message me, I just got a notification, I just got a like, uh, they actually... Uh, performed far worse than the people who are high on marijuana. <laughs> so yeah, so it's obviously this idea that this digital connected, you know, what are people saying about me online behind my back that I yeah. need to check and always need to be aware of is is definitely detracting from our work.
1: So you're better off smoking joints yeah. rather than having an iPhone.
0: Yeah, that's the moral of the story that one. Probably the best thing is uh, neither. Yeah, but <laughs> if you got a choice, <laughs> go, go <laughs> for it's the a joint. Binary, <laughs> <yeah>.
1: <laughs> so you know, for a lot of us, we all understand the benefits of the internet. Like, we love our Google Maps. We don't want to abandon Instagram. Um, But we don't really look at some of these negative impacts that it has on our lives, and these are coming increasingly important. So, uh, Big Cal, he does shine a light on these negative things. And he says it's kind of like a lopsided arm race, like more like a David versus Goliath kind of battle we're going going on through for attention, and we're not even aware that this war is going on.
0: Mm. He says that, you know, whilst our, our primitive brains, where we are uh, inherently, we have a need for social approval and to uh, connect and be part of the tribe, because that's how we survived when we were, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, the bigger our tribe was, the, the more protection, and the more food and etc. So we have these underlying needs. To have this social approval, and you know, their social media companies prey on that. They know that we need this social approval, yeah. so they'll give us a little notification, they'll give us a little like, they'll give us a little buzz in the pocket. And uh, we're, as Cal uh, said, it's a lopsided arms race, we've got no chance against them. So, when Facebook started
1: out, if you think about when you downloaded Facebook for a lot of people, what it was 2007, 2008, so about 10 years ago, I guess you probably never thought that you'd actually be spending two hours Mm. a single day on it. When you first downloaded it, you thought, oh, I thought it'd be interesting to see, you know, Joe or Diana's boyfriend and relationship status or whatever. (laughs) But today, it's really really taken a big chunk out of your life. Or also, when you first got your iPhone in, say, 2007, you thought that the music features were pretty cool, but you'd never be thinking that you'd actually check it 85 times Mm. a day, which is what the average person checks it. So, it's kind, of tr- it's kind of for small reasons, you take your first footsteps in taking these devices and downloading your social platforms, but slowly and slowly and slowly, it, it takes a big chunk out of your life.
0: Yeah. And the, um, it- a little bit into the more conspiracy realm Ooh. is that Cal said that at the time when Facebook was approaching their IPO... They needed people to spend more time on the platform because that's how they made money from ads and so on. So they wanted to bump up their revenues to IPO to get a higher valuation. In order to bump up their revenues, they need to bump up the amount of time people spent on there. And that's where they were able to use some of these uh, manipulative techniques playing on our psychology to hook people in to keep them there longer. Mm. Uh, and yeah, we, we both love a bit of conspiracy. Oh, no? yeah, I mate. reckon he's bang on there. Yeah,
1: it's come off a few times, right? And this is a bit of a side note, but corporations, they're... Obliged to do what's best for the shareholders, not what's best for you or the social good or the planet or anything. They're all about quarterly earnings per share a lot of the time and they're obligated to to earn profit and not improve the social social good.
0: Yeah, so uh, Bill Maher, who uh, we neither of us probably know too much about, but he's uh, very popular in the US. Yeah. Uh, he uh, went on one of his rants in 2012, saying that the tycoons of social media they have to stop pretending they're friendly nerds who are you know just building a better world for everybody, and admit that they're tobacco farmers in t-shirts selling addictive product to children. Mm-hmm. So he's saying that they're just as bad as tobacco, but and possibly even worse because you know Philip Morris they just want your lungs, but Facebook and Twitter they want your soul. <laughs> So yeah, they're not
1: they're not out for the social good of the world. There was actually a Google engineer, Trisha Harris, who calls it a slot machine. So every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what you get so you know, they've got actually the same people who program slot machines and the psychologists in the same groups at Facebook. If you look at the definition of addiction, it's the condition in which a person engages in the use of a substance or behavior for which the rewarding effects provide compelling incentive to to repeatedly pursue the behavior despite detrimental consequences. So, until only recently, this was kind of thought of only left for uh, alcohol or drugs, but now, it's really obvious that it's actually behavioral addiction from tech companies as well.
0: Yeah, if you you feel like you're constantly pulling your phone out and you can't help it and you're just checking those notifications, that is... Uh, approaching addiction level, similar to someone smoking or drinking who is uh, chemically addicted. Our behavior is an addiction. And uh, one of the things that they use, as you said, they're, they're harnessing the ideas of, you know, the Vegas um, pokey machines, and they're using playing psychology to use it against us. One of the things is using random rewards. So there was a test about uh, pigeons where they, if they peck a button, they get a food pellet. And if they do it every single time, that was one group. The second group was sometimes they'd get nothing. And sometimes if they peck the button, they might get three or four things. So it was random rewards in that uh, they never knew when their payoff was going to come. And the pigeons in the random rewards, as opposed to the consistent one pellet every time, peck that button a shitload more. So it's saying that you know. If sometimes we open up, there's no notifications. Sometimes we open up and we've got 30 likes. Yeah. That random rewards of what's what may or may not come. That's what sucks us in and gets us addicted.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. Every time I go on your Facebook or your LinkedIn or your you you look at it, you, the first thing is to look at the notifications, mm. and there is, like, if you're honest to yourself, there is this little bit of dopamine <laughs> that gets released, and it feels good for this instant second, and it is uh, it is likened it. It could be quite similar to that hit of cocaine.
0: Even uh, Sean Parker, who was obviously one of the very, very, very early members of, of Facebook, if you've watched the social network, uh, the Justin Timberlake character, uh, he even said that their thought process when they were building this platform up, their intention was to, how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? So He's even stated that this was the goal of you know Facebook in particular, and I'm sure all of the social media, is to Actually, uh, you know, suck us into the vortex of social media. And so that's what they were working towards, and they've certainly achieved that.
1: So, yeah, we got these for, for minor reasons, but right now it's taking control of our lives. And you use the metaphor of, of Plato's chariot, and it's the idea that our soul can be un- understood as a chariot driver struggling to rein two horses. So one horse is our better nature and the other is our basic impulses that, you know, of our evolution. So when we increasingly give up our autonomy to the digital and we let Facebook and Instagram and all the social media tycoons control our basic impulses, that means our we're, we're being rung by the, the wrong horse, really. And, and the horse with our better nature, when we want to actually be a productive citizen of the world, has got less power and less control compared to the other rampant raging fucking wild horse it's uh it's really starting to take increasingly take control of all all of our all over our lives like for you man how much uh you know on your iphone now it has your screen time like it's ridiculous
0: yeah it's high it's embarrassing embarrassingly high (laughs) extremely embarrassing (laughs) if you if you check your uh your new settings on the iphone they've got the the screen time app where you can see how long per day i don't know if it says how many times you check i think it probably Mm. does yeah Mm, it does yeah, but I know the average like... It's 83, um, yeah, for the average. Yeah, yeah. There was a book called Irresistible by Adam Alter, uh, which Cal references a lot. And he was doing a, a test, I guess, to work out try to work out why these phones are irresistible. And the first phase of his test was to work out how often he checked it. So he downloaded a, a similar app and he thought, oh, I'll probably check it 10 times a day and all up I'm probably on my phone for 15 minutes and he was like horrified to find out that like he was 70 plus checks per day and over an hour per day and he was well below average as he said it's like 83 times per day that we're opening up our phone to check it that's a shitload man Mm, that's a shitload
1: it's absolutely ridiculous so good news is Newport suggests at the end of the book or the whole point of the book really is the solution which is digital minimalism. And to define it, he says, it's a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected optimized activities that strongly support the things that you value and then happily miss out on everything else.
0: Yeah, so this idea of digital minimalism, uh, it's not just uh, digital ignorism or something like that. It's not full digital is bad, completely cut it out of your life because there are significant benefits to using the internet, using everything digital that can enhance all areas of your life. But he's saying that we need to be very conscious and very specific and very careful about what we choose, uh, how we use it, and why we use it.
1: It's being extremely conscious in performing a cost-benefit analysis of every individual platform, like understanding what are the costs of this of Instagram and what is the benefit. There might be someone out there who owns a bakery or something, and there's a huge benefit in having Instagram. But at the same time, Facebook might serve no purpose for them. So, it's each individual person has different utility in every single different
0: device. And one key part of this, he says, is that there's the any-benefit approach or the best-use approach. So, the any-benefit approach might be you think, okay, I, might, I use Instagram, I can check because I'm able to see what my friends are doing. And so, that might be a benefit or you might say that you use Facebook because you can uh, you can keep aware of, you know, there's an event coming up, someone invites you, so you're not going to miss someone's birthday. That's an any-benefit approach saying, okay, there's one single benefit of using Facebook, so I'm going to use Facebook or there's one single benefit of using Instagram, so I'm going to use Instagram. But the that's the any-benefit approach, which means you can pretty much use everything because there's going to be some benefit to it uh, and that's not looking at the costs. Whereas the best-use approach would be thinking okay if i need to be uh, aware of events that are coming up or if i need to see what my friends are doing or if i need to message people what's the best way to do that so not thinking about is there a benefit to this what's the best way that i can achieve this and if you think of it that way you're going to have significantly less you know accounts on different uh, significantly less profiles significantly less apps and you're going to only focus on the best way to achieve your desired outcome.
1: Yeah, that's it. So you get to think, is this technology the best use to support this value and the best way of doing what the actual thing I'm trying to do? And if the answer is no, then you're better to use a use better option. So you need to work back towards deep values in your technological choices. And what you end up doing if you do this all successfully, you transform these innovations from a source of distraction that really subtracts huge value for your life if you think about the concept of developing career capital and then it goes in toward a, a technologies that support a life um,
0: well lived. So, if you, sort of, if you sold at, at this point, obviously, that if you, you need to develop skills in career capital and to do that, you need to do deep work. To do that, you need to reduce distraction. To do that, we need to try and become a digital minimalist. And the then, other
1: benefits as well of digital minimalism is just now living
0: a better life, but yeah, yeah, yeah. he says it 's not only um work but this book in particular more than the other two is also just about our personal relationships as well obviously if you're um, you go to watch your kid 's soccer game, but you're on your, on your emails the whole time mm. or if you 're sitting down to uh, for a wine and movie. With your partner, and then you're checking Instagram the whole time. There are definitely a big, big, big negative implications of being constant, being so digital. So it's not just a work thing, but also a personal thing that we need to cut back on all of our digital connection. And so, one thing he suggests is a digital declutter, which is probably an extreme way to do it, but sometimes if you need to make a big change, you need to make an extreme change.
1: Mm, gradual changing habits doesn't work very well for a lot of things and especially this. So, the first thing you need to do, it's a three-step process. You need to put aside a 30-day period where you'll take a break from optional technologies in your life. So, you know, what's the date today? It's March for those who are game. Do it for all of April.
0: Hmm, That's ballsy. So put aside 30 days, as he says, removing optional technologies. Obviously, if you're working in an office and you've got to be on your uh, computer to do work and, and you've got to be on emails, you can't just tell your boss, I'm going to have 30 days of no computer time. Just, I'm going to just use a pen and paper for the next 30 days. It's the optional things. It's the things on you know, your social media, maybe take 30 days off. If it's your phone and you play games on your phone on the train, take 30 days off.
1: All right. So, after the 30 days, you've really emptied all of the unnecessary social media out of your life. So, the third step, you need to reintroduce the optional technologies into your life. So, rather than just bringing them back in willy-nilly like you got them in at the very start, you need to actually do that cost-benefit analysis now and consciously choose which ones are going to add value to how the way you live.
0: Yeah. Rather than just thinking, okay, if, it's like a bit of a detox rather than thinking, okay, I'm going to have a 30-day sugar detox and then on the, the first day of the... On day 31, you just back on the burgers and milkshakes. Mm. It's probably not the best way to do it. So, the same goes with this. If you uh, you know take 30 days off social media and games and then on day 31, you just back on it, that's the wrong way to do it. He says we need to consciously decide what we put back into our lives and not only what we put back into our lives, but define rules about why we can use it, when we can use it, how we can use it. So, for example, if you do decide, okay, Facebook is important to me for reasons A, B, and C, You don't put the app back on your phone. Maybe it's that you say, okay, on Tuesday night and Friday night each week at 6.30, I'm going to go on my laptop only and check for 20 minutes my notifications or reply to friends and send messages and stuff. So, defining very clear rules, Mm. not only what you're allowed to use, but how and when you can use them.
1: Defining rules and also setting yourself up for systems because if you just let that, you know, going back to that analogy of that horse run wild, which is your subconscious impulses, then you're probably in the in a losing battle. So, just setting yourself up to win. You know, one thing which I'm about to do is just let my girlfriend have my password for Facebook just so, you know, I have to do that extra step of asking her to log me in first before I can check the notification. So mm. you know, little things like that, you're gonna you're gonna win the battle.
0: Yeah, that is one thing that obviously the easier it is to do something, then you, you're gonna do it. If you build as many barriers into it as possible, like rather than having the app on your phone that's always logged in, if you don't have the app on your phone and you don't have the password automatically saved and you have to physically go and find that password and put mm. it in each time, it's just extra barriers that every time you're gonna stop and think is this the best use of my time right now? Yeah,
1: another one would be you know things like do not disturb. Mm. Um, you can have your phone in all the time. So in the book, he's actually got a whole bunch of little things like that that you um you can you can deploy. So it's one of those books if you can just just take three or four or five points, it's mm. fantastic. But if you actually do this full di- digital declutter, then it's going to offer huge value for you.
0: So that's uh that's the digital minimalism as you say, mate. If you do the full thirty de- day declutter, that's great. Even if you just do one thing, whether it's you. Uh, turn off all your notifications that's a, a big step in the right direction as well and so that's big cal newport the third book of his we've done and in a couple of days we've got our interview coming up with cal newport uh which should be phenomenal
1: 've mm, forward to that one he's a beast we've been trying to get him for a while actually
0: we have he's a digital minimalist mate he's uh tough to track down <laughs>